Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Well, just uh, for listeners of Prince Podcast, I should identify myself as Al Zambone of Historically Thinking. And this is Brent Orell, and I am the host of a podcast called Hardly Working. And with us on our podcast is David Staley, a professor of history at The Ohio State University and director of the Humanities Institute. Is that not correct, David? That is correct. Thanks very much for the invitation, Al. So um, I'm going to take the first half of this and uh, ask you some questions about your work on history in the future. Um, we wanted to, uh, I thought this was an interesting, um, be interesting to mash up uh, Brent and myself, but let's uh, to tackle different aspects of your thought and how it could apply to our present situation. So uh, you've written a uh, 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 article, an essay, which I am terrified to see was back in 2002. <laughs> Seems just like yesterday. I know. <laughs> um, yeah. And then a book uh, called uh, History in the Future. Uh, so your argument is that historians um, should think about the future as they think about other disciplines. And I know my reaction is similar to that of other historians, that we have enough trouble thinking about the past. Why do we have to add the future to our set of problems? Wow. Uh, no, that you're, you're quite right. And uh, I think it's precisely because of our um, concerns and issues and the way in which we problematize the past that, uh, that we make particularly good futurists. Uh, so uh, I should begin by saying um, uh, when, I, when I started college, uh, I didn't immediately jump into history. In fact, what I wanted to do was uh, to be a futurist. Uh, I'd spent uh, I'd spent the summer between high school and college reading um, the um, the Foundation trilogy, Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, and at the end of the summer said, "Boy, this is what I want to do. I want to do psychohistory. I want to I want to be able to think about the future." Oh, uh, of course, I got I got to college, and of course, there is no future studies. Uh, in fact, that's still the case at the undergraduate level today. Uh, but uh, uh, over the years, I've come to understand that, uh, A, there is a profession called uh, the future or futurist or a scenarist that goes by different names. There are people whose avocation is to think about the future, largely for, for purposes of, uh, of like strategic planning or, or, or business planning or something like that. So uh, I discovered that, 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 that this profession existed uh, and uh, the more I learned about it, the more I started to engage in this sort of thinking myself, the more I realized that historians uh, are particularly good at it. Uh, and in fact, it was my training as an historian that I think had prepared me uh, to become a futurist. Uh, but uh, you're quite right to point to the fact that uh, before historians can get to that stage, we've got to... Uh, we've got to, first of all, convince ourselves that it's okay to think about the future, uh, because this is something that historians uh, studiously avoid. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, the, you mentioned several names of the people that you call universal historians, like uh, uh, Spengler, Toynbee, um, 
Arthur Schlesinger in his Cycles book. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people that we are warned not to read right. at, at some point in graduate, usually, um, and to avoid them at all costs. Um, and in fact, you are you uh, are somewhat critical of universal history. So how can uh, we study the future as historians if we're not practicing this sort of universal history? Yeah, no, it's a good question because uh, I think this has long been uh, the sort of the, the sort of argument that if history is at all valuable for helping us to think about the future, it's in uh, its ability to reveal patterns in the past that we can then project forward. And of course, Karl Popper uh, uh, rejected that whole idea of the poverty of historicism. Um, and in fact, in, 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 in the article and in the, in, in the book as well, I sort of say, yeah, that is very problematic. In fact, uh, one of the things that we understand as historians is that, uh, uh, that events in the past were not uh, uh, determinist, that were not determined, were not highly determined. Um, and so the argument I make in the book is that we shouldn't be looking to um, un- uh, uh, uncovering patterns in the past. Rather, it's the methodology, it's the thought process of the historian that proves a particularly effective in thinking about the future. And in fact, if there's any sort of uh, uh, analogy, I suppose, it's to what counterfactual historians are doing. Counterfactualist goes back to a, a moment in the past and tries to imagine what were the uh, the alternative possibilities, and in fact, that's sort of where we are today. I think uh, as futurists, we're sitting in a moment in time and we're trying to imagine the possibilities going forward. Now, this is uh, imagine the possibilities. You make clear is very different than prediction, and in Correct. fact, history uh, historical thought should armor us from the hubris of making predictions. Does that more or less capture what you're thinking? Yes, indeed. And in fact, it was um, it was a, a, a scenarist, a futurist, uh, Peter Schwartz, that, that, that gave me the, uh, the confidence, I suppose, the permission to think about the future in ways other than prediction. In fact, uh, so he wrote a book, uh, oh gosh, uh, maybe 30 years ago, uh, called The Art of the Long View, that described the scenario method and the scenario method for thinking about the future. And what he said is that we can't predict the future. The future is in itself unpredictable for, for, for various uh, methodological reasons, and I suppose ontological reasons as well. And said, what he said is that we need to think in terms of scenarios, plural, possibilities uh, for mm. what the future might look like. And so given the fact that thinking about the future doesn't mean making predictions, it's in that space that I said historians could be particularly effective. So what are scenarios and uh, how does one think about scenarios? So a scenario is a description. Uh, well, the, the term, I suppose, comes from the filmmaking industry. It's a description of a scene. So a scenario is a description of a, a world, I suppose, is, is the best way to think of it. Um, and the way I like to describe it is that as futurists, what we, uh, what we really study are systems, are complex systems. So when someone says, I want to know the future of X, what they're really saying is, I want to know what that system is going to be, uh, uh, what, what it's going to look like or how it's going to behave at some point in the future. And because we're talking about complex systems, the behavior of that system could look very different. And so the idea of a scenario is try to describe the state of a system in various configurations. 
as a futurist, I tend to think in terms of three or four scenarios for any sort of problem I might be looking at. And again, the analogy here is with counterfactual history. What are the different possibilities that could unfold from a particular moment in time? So often on my podcast, I'm asking um, hopefully very direct questions about evidence and problems of evidence of, of historians. Um, you deal with it. This seems to me, of course, one of the key problems in this, uh, what you're advocating is the problem of evidence. You wrote um, a history of the future of Japan once. Mm -hmm. uh, what evidence did you use to write about the history? Um, so uh, mostly uh, observations of what's occurring in the present. And then from those observations, drawing inferences which is essentially what we do as historians. We, get, we, we take evidence and then draw inferences from that evidence. In other words, inference meaning to see more or to understand more than what is explicitly stated in that evidence. And so I looked at what was happening or, or, or uh, trends that were occurring in contemporary Japan. So I would look, for instance, at the, uh, the, the sort of cohort behaviors of young Japanese and then try to infer from that, how would those behaviors uh, present themselves as they grew older? So at, at the time I wrote this, I was looking at sort of 20-something Japanese who were exhibiting very different sorts of behaviors uh, than, than, than earlier generations of Japanese. And then projecting it forward. What does that mean when they're 30 and 40 years old, when they start to take leadership positions? How might, uh, how might they... Uh, govern differently? How might they approach uh, business differently? That's just sort of one example. But you've, you've hit upon, I think, uh, a really important issue, I think, in thinking about the future. What, indeed, what is evidence about the future? Yes, and I, I want to get back to that, uh, your conclusions about Japan, and put, put a pin on that for a second. But um, yeah, the uh, question of evidence um, made me think that in a way we do this a lot anyway, especially historians of classical and medieval, uh, medieval uh, his history. Um, there's so many gaps in the evidentiary record for, say, classical Greece or, or, or even the Roman Republic um, that one often has to use a piece of evidence and then project forward to what you think happened 50 years later Mm -hmm. um, and trying to extrapolate to the ground between two pieces of evidence that might be 75 years apart. Um, that, in a way, is what you're discussing. Yes, precisely. And in fact, one of the arguments that I've made is that it's because we have such a dearth of evidence about the future, a very limited evidentiary base, that historians make good futurists, precisely because historians are already expert at, uh, at, at dealing with, at reading uh, 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 incomplete information, incomplete data. Um, so back to the uh, Japanese example, um, how did you do? It's been a while since you wrote that. Um, uh, it, has been, it has been a while, hasn't it? Uh, uh, probably close to 20 years. And so I was looking out at Japan uh, to 2025. I think I wrote it around, it was around the year 2000 or 2005, something like that. And so I posed uh, four scenarios, and uh, uh, one of the scenarios, which uh, when I wrote it in, uh, in, in 2005, uh, uh, probably looked very sort of outlandish. 
and it was a sort of a, uh, a conservative retrenchment that Japan sort of goes back to a, to a, a sort of a conservative, uh, almost sort of nationalistic, um, uh, nationalistic state. In some ways, I think that's that's the scenario that has been borne out. Um, and so I suppose in that sense, I got it quote unquote right. Uh, but in many ways, that's not, uh, that's not always the, uh, the criteria of judgment for a good scenario. Mm-hmm. Why not? Um, because uh, again, it goes back to the question of prediction. Uh, and, uh, I say this before uh, any audience I speak to, and I think any good, uh, any good future says this, that anybody that says they can predict the future is lying lying to you uh, or lying to themselves. Uh, and so uh, when we when we quote unquote get it right, what that means is we've imagined uh, a, uh, a plausible scenario. And again, the idea is uh, to think in terms of, 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 of many scenarios, four or five scenarios, with the understanding that uh, that uh, that most of these scenarios are going to be wrong, are going to be incorrect. So as I say, I wrote four scenarios uh, for the future of Japan. Uh, one that appears to be uh, uh, appears to be unfolding, although not precisely. I mean, there were there were things in that scenario that, uh, that, that, that that haven't come to pass. But that also means I wrote three scenarios that were, quote unquote, incorrect or were, quote unquote, failures. Uh, and again, it's not uh, it, it, it's, it's not part of the criteria for thinking about uh, for thinking about uh, scenarios. You uh, warn that we're not supposed to think that scenario writing consists of making um, simple or even elaborate analogies to past events. Um, that's often how people think that uh, history will help us think about the future. The Black Death is like the 1918-1919 um, flu, which is like the 2020 uh, pandemic. Um, could you explain why analogy is, in, in fact, sometimes really dangerous? Uh, it is dangerous if used incorrectly and used uh, in uh, unskilled hands. So uh, I think I use analogies uh, rather a lot uh, in my own foresight work. But uh, the, the definition of an analogy is a similarity in the midst of apparent difference. And I think too often those that want to uh, sort of um, simplistically use analogies see only similarities rather than trying to understand differences. So, for instance, uh, uh, the, the, the quick analogy to COVID-19, of course, is the, uh, is the flu pandemic of 1918. Uh, the impulse would be to sort of say, well, we need to look at the history. You need to see and look what happened in 1918 for us to understand what's going to happen in 2020 and 2021 going forward. Uh, misunderstanding that 2020 is not 1918, that there are that there are possibilities that we can see uh, in uh, in in learning something about the 1918 pandemic, but we will most surely uh, overlook uh, uh, overlook what is unique to this situation. The other challenge I think with using analogies is identifying the wrong analogy. Uh, so after 9-11, after the 9-11 attacks, you had a number of people say, well, this is like Pearl Harbor, which I actually think was the wrong analogy. Uh, in fact, at the time I said, if you're looking for any sort of analogy, it's more like the Tet Offensive. Uh, uh, and so that's another danger, I think, in uh, relying on uh, historical analogy as a way of thinking about uh, future scenarios. 
Um, you say that historians uh, will have to think structurally and synchronically if they want to do this sort of work. Um, could you explain what those terms of this new art are? Yeah, so scenarios, uh, as I say, are descriptions of systems or descriptions of scenes. And that's why I use the term synchronic, for instance, as opposed to a diachronic narrative. And that's the kind maybe that most historians are accustomed to, which is this happens on this day and then this happens and it has this sort of cause and it has this sort of effect. Uh, so in a scenario like my Japanese scenarios, uh, I imagine one scenario where uh, Japan uh, becomes more culturally Western or even culturally American, let's say, in terms of attitudes toward entrepreneurialism, attitudes toward individualism, and indeed things like women's rights. And in the scenario, I posited uh, that uh, Japan uh, even elects a, a female prime minister, which is something that hasn't happened. Uh, but I don't say that they elect this person on this date, for instance. Again, it's a description of a scene, uh, synchronic, uh, in the way that anthropologists, for instance, talking about uh, talk about a synchronic narrative. Mm -hmm. um, finally, um, you uh, had uh, had had certain hopes. <laughs> you uh, <laughs> imagined uh, even a, a, a journal uh, which had a great title, Subjunctivity, mm. Journal of Historical Plausibility. Um, what? How did your scenarios of the future of history, his, uh, historians writing about the future, how did that work out? And uh, what's changed and what hasn't, especially in your opinions? Um, I think uh, probably very little has changed. Uh, there are certainly, uh, uh, today, uh, there are more historians that are interested in foresight, that are interested in, in futuring in this country. Uh, but I think I can count them on one hand. Uh, <laughs> And so I'm not certain that, well, I, I am certain that the, uh, that the historical uh, profession uh, has not embraced the study of the future. Uh, the journal doesn't exist, although I still hold out uh, uh, hope that I will uh, find the time and energy to, to do it. Uh, but, you know, only just, um, uh, only just in the last uh, two weeks, I've been asked to, uh, uh, to referee or to comment on an article uh, on the relationship between uh, history and, and foresight, history and future. But I'll note that the article is not written by an historian. Hmm. And so uh, I don't think that the, that, that, that the historical profession has, uh, has, has latched on to this. Um, and what about your own opinions on history and the future? Uh, how, how, have they developed at all? Have, have they changed? Um. They've been, I think, strengthened, uh, and in fact, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've even gone uh, all in, uh, uh, even then when I wrote the book. So when I wrote the huh. book, I was really writing uh, a, a theoretical treatise uh, about what historians could be doing, and I had, uh, I had engaged it myself in in some but very limited sort of scenario and foresight writing myself, my Japanese. Uh, article, my future uh, Japan article, was one of my first sort of forays into that. And since then, uh, I've, I've become more, um, um, more of a practitioner. So for about, uh, for about eight or 10 years or so, I had my own consulting practice doing foresight uh, uh, with uh, companies, with organizations, I suppose, uh, outside of an academic setting. 
Uh, and then about uh, five years ago, there's a, uh, there's a, a, a local um, media outlet here in Columbus uh, call, called uh, Columbus Underground, for whom I write a monthly uh, futures column. Uh, called Next. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm on a deadline right now to, uh, to have my latest, uh, la- my latest one. Uh, and uh, I've, uh, I've since uh, collected these, reorganized these, and I'm hoping to publish this collection as uh, uh, stories about the future, histories of the future, uh, uh, applied history, I think is another way of thinking of, of, of what I'm doing uh, as, a, uh, uh, as a futurist, as an historian who is a futurist. Uh, and so uh, I guess uh, personally, uh, I've gone all in on the idea of an historian writing about the future. Yeah. And, and of course, it, I, I decided I had to talk to you about this when I finally the penny dropped about a year after I, I recorded a conversation with you about your last book, Alternative mm-hmm. Universities, and realized that, of course, was an entire exercise. How did I miss this entire exercise in this sort of uh, future history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So... Um, I, I thought we would, uh, when, I, when I got the idea for this, I realized this uh, from something Brent and I have been talking about, uh, about the, what the, how the pandemic would change things. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, having uh, done this necessary spade work in historical thinking, I'll turn this over to Brent for the applied stuff. This is really the perfect time uh, for me to jump in because I, uh, as, a, as a think tanker and a public policy practitioner, um, uh, your work, um, I think, holds uh, some real opportunities for us uh, in this world of attempting to uh, uh, advise or, or imagine better futures um, for um, the United States and its and its people. Um, and so, I, I mean, I have to say, as I read the article, you know, I saw a whole herd of my hobby horses galloping through the pages um, <laughs> of the article. Um, you know, that you, you really do touch on some of the, the major themes that have kind of dominated my thinking um, over the last couple of years about um, the challenges of policymaking. Um, and uh, the first and probably the largest of those is this issue of contingency, mm-hmm. um, you know, that uh, we never, when we attempt to do something in life, and including politics or public policy, uh, and, we, and we make a change to a law, we make a change to a regulation, we make uh, some sort of um, other kind of programmatic initiative, uh, that we that we want to um, that we want to use to try to shape reshape um, a reality, typically a negative reality uh, in society, and try to make it better. This issue of contingency immediately interrupts um, uh, uh, our our effort to do those things. I just wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of your work. Um, and your consulting work, um, where you encounter that uh, contingency, how you incorporate it into uh, sort of futurism as you advise people, not about the past, but about what's coming. Um, so I think the first 
the first way this is done, and and I'm 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 sort of thinking through my answer here because it can be it can be politically challenging. Is uh, it's getting organizations to think differently about their future, or another way of, of saying it is. Uh, to uh, challenge or otherwise problematize the received picture of the future. A lot of the organizations, uh, I'll, say, I'll say some of the organizations that I've worked with, um, already have sort of predetermined or uh, preconceived ideas about what the future is going to bring for various reasons. Uh, some of it has to do with various industries tend to be uh, uh, very regular and predictable and stable. At least they think of themselves like this. Uh, that are uh, uh, even you know tied to the business cycle, and so they don't think in terms of, of deviations from that. Um, others, I think, just because of a of, of a kind of hubris, I suppose, that uh, that they that they think that they uh, they know what the future is going to bring because they're going to build it. And so, introducing the idea of contingency. Uh, is uh, or the contingency of events that uh, is is challenging for them to see uh, until it isn't, and I'll and I'll give examples of what I mean by that. Uh, so uh, the 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 first, for instance, was the the Great Recession. I clearly saw it after the Great Recession of, of two thousand eight. Uh, uh, a number of organizations. Uh, came to me and said, uh, you know, we, we, we want to hire you. We want to bring you in here. Uh, we didn't see that coming. So help us think about things that, uh, that, that uh, what are the other things that we're not seeing right now that could impact us? And I think it, that was a moment where uh, organizations became uh, aware of, of the impact of, uh, of contingency. I think our current moment is the same way. I think that uh, COVID-19 uh, has, has for, for, for many organizations uh, been, uh, been an event that they, um, that they weren't thinking about or uh, weren't considering, uh, even though there were, obviously there were a lot of experts that were, that were envisioning this scenario. A lot of them were. Uh, I'll just sort of finish by saying that uh, that 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 contingency or the the place of contingency uh, in trying to understand public policy, for instance, uh, goes back to the uh, point I was making about complex systems. That as futurists, uh, as as public policy researchers, what we study, what we're interested in, are complex systems. And one of the things that we know about uh, about such systems is that big changes to those systems can be caused by small, uh, small changes, small initial effects. So it's called the butterfly effect, right? That a butterfly flapping its wings in, in, in West Africa uh, disturbs the atmosphere enough that it causes a hurricane you know, somewhere over the Atlantic. Uh, the thing that's not always stated, though, about the butterfly effect is that that same butterfly could flap its wings and do nothing, nothing more than disturb the air around it. That's the nature of complex systems. And so um, when we talk about contingency, I think it has to be understood in that sort of context, that you don't know what the, or you can, you can imagine possibilities for the effect of a small scale change. You talk about like a change in policy or a change in law or a change in some sort of regulation. Um, the, because uh, we're talking about complex systems, they ha could potentially have outsized effects from what uh, from what they were originally designed to do. 
So, um, you know, I, as I was reading the article, I was thinking, well, you know, public policy is really kind of um, futurism in real time. Uh, you bet. You know, we, we see this problem. We want, we want to affect it. We, um, we, we do this analysis, we develop a response. Um, but of course this contingency effect, um, means that, you know, we change one thing, we change a whole bunch of things, which is something that, um, Al's father, um, helped me understand, uh, over dinner one night. Um, but, uh, there's also the, the the sort of the knock-on effects. So we go in with our intervention, we try to change something, and we change a bunch of things, and then those changes begin to feed back into the policy. So you, you wind up in a kind of hall of mirrors um, where things uh, are refracting. Uh, you know, the, the policy becomes part of the environment, uh, the policy change that you've just instituted becomes part of the environment and begins to shape and, and reshape it, uh, itself. There's a, there's a, a, a weird, um, it's not just a butterfly effect that's externally focused, but one that's internally focused. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, I could see some of this going on recently with the COVID crisis um, in terms of federal legislation that was supposed to be, you know, that we passed in order to help, um, to help businesses and workers sort of weather this initial storm. And um, it was extraordinary to me because in the 30 years that I have uh, been doing this work, uh, one thing that I've noticed is how, when there's something really big like this, we typically pass it and then stand back and watch, right? It's (laughs) like, okay, we're just gonna stand back and see how this works. We're gonna try to evaluate, we're gonna assess it maybe in five years, we'll revisit the policy. But with co- with the COVID relief packages, we've actually been in kind of a rapid cycle policy process where, um, you know, we passed the initial bill, the problems immediately emerged. And within a month, Congress passed new legislation trying to connect or correct uh, the, the, the problems in the initial bill. And then came back again a month later to do even more corrections. Uh, this is extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily unusual in uh, a, a kind of gridlock policy environment that we exist in. Um, and I'm wondering, what, which is better? You know, like from your perspective, what would you say is better? Is it better to have, uh, you know, sort of experiment, you know, pass the thing, and then watch it and see how it develops? Or do we need this kind of rapid cycle feedback um, in the in the policy process? So, um, because the policy process uh, uh, oftentimes has to work on speed, uh, it's 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 sometimes just challenging, just difficult, uh, logistically challenging uh, to go through the exercise of trying to uh, think through or to imagine all the effects beforehand or all the possible effects beforehand. As a scenarist, uh, as someone who, who, who thinks in terms of different possibilities, uh, that's an approach I always like to take. 
uh, is to think through not just sort of the obvious effects or the effects that you want to have happen. Oftentimes, when we make a decision or when we write, uh, uh, when when we when we write a policy brief, we think that we're solving this particular problem or we're addressing this particular issue, and we uh, uh, either choose or again just because of the the, the nature of the of the, the policy making process, uh, we haven't the time to think through the the other possibilities. Um, but uh, it strikes me that it's, uh, it's, it's a key part of any sort of foresight exercise is to think through, uh, in particular, unintended consequences. There's a group of us that are that Ohio State right now that are, that, are, that are going through this kind of exercise right now, especially in a, a public policy setting. Uh, what does it mean to identify or think through unintended consequences? How do we make the unintended uh, visible? Uh, and it's a real challenge. It's a it, it's a it, it's a significant challenge, uh, but one I think that's uh, that's vitally important, uh, even as, and especially in a policy in a policy setting. Brent, you also had mentioned something else that I think is is, is sort of key to this, uh, and to me, it is one of the biggest differences between thinking about the future or writing representations about the future versus writing representations about the past, and that is. That when we that when we write a scenario, when we make a statement about the future, we have the possibility of altering the thing that we're writing and talking about. So I'll give you an example, the sort of thing I'm talking about. So a guy goes to a uh, guy goes to his doctor, and the doctor, uh, you know, does an examination. He says, "Look, you know, you you eat too much, you smoke too much, you're overweight, you don't exercise. Uh, you're going to have a heart attack in six months." And so the guy goes back home, he changes his diet, he exercises more, uh, comes back six months later and says, ha, you were wrong. Your prediction, your statement about the future was wrong. Well, had the doctor not said anything to him, the guy very likely would have had a heart attack. And so the idea of making the statement about the future changes the very thing that you're describing or that you're representing. That's a challenge that we face, I think, uh, in foresight. And I think I would think in particular in a public policy research setting as well, that by making the statement, you're altering that which you are, uh, that which you are uh, studying. Uh, and I suspect you run into that uh, uh, all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's part of the knowledge challenge is, you know, that we, we look at data, we look at, you know, information, we look at studies and we, um, we draw, we draw conclusions and then we launch, um, you know, policies address, you know, they're supposed to address that, but yeah, we're, we become <laughs> in a sense, we are becoming, we're, we're taking partial ownership of the problem and we are becoming the problem, uh, in our, in, <laughs> in our policymaking process. So, uh, it, it's a, uh, you know, Al said to me many years ago, uh, like when I was working on Capitol Hill and he said, oh gosh, you know, can't believe how brave you are to do this work. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, this has nothing to do with bravery. I'm not taking any risks, you know? Well, uh, I was partly right about that. Uh, but, but in large part wrong because I'm, I'm taking, I'm creating risk for others mainly. Um, by engaging in public policy work. Um, and I, I think that's really uh, not something that I've, I've 
that I had thought enough about something I think about a lot more now um, that uh, we aren't just dealing with um, widgets. You know, we're, these are things that affect people that drive their that that shape and drive their behaviors um, as uh, uh, and and we be, we take a certain amount of responsibility um, for for what happens um, when we do these things. I don't know if you had a chance um, to read a book by a guy by the name of Michael Blasland. It's called How the World Conceals uh, the Hidden Half, How the World Conceals Its Secrets. But it really goes into this in some uh, significant detail about, you know, the blindness, basically, of our public policy process um, when, it, when it comes to uh, deciding what the problems are, designing the solutions, the limited ways, and this is something I really want to get your thoughts on. I mean, one of the points Blaslin makes is, uh, you know, that we need different streams of data in order to uh, help avoid some of the unintended consequences. You know, it's not enough to have statistical data. Uh, it doesn't even begin to be to be enough, um, and that we need kind of narrative. Um, uh, or qualitative data to help us understand the context around those statistics. Um, have you have you thought about that? Oh yes, no that, that that's that that's uh, that's coming from my playbook now. <laughs> the idea of contextualizing yeah. and especially qualitative data. Uh, uh, no, I'm absolutely on board with that. So uh, uh, one of my columns, uh, probably in about two months' time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to write about the results of a, uh, of a study, a white paper that McKinsey is, has recently published on the biotech revolution, at least the future of biotech. And well, because it's McKinsey, they were looking mostly at the um, sort of business development implications of some of the work that's happening right now, like in, in you know, CRISPR, gene editing, these sorts of things. Uh, and so, you know, it is what it is. It's a uh, it, it's it, it's it's aimed at a, at a particular sort of audience. But uh, there were a few moments in the white paper where um, they would make statements to the effect of um, there will certainly be uh, ethical and cultural implications. But that's beyond the that, that's beyond the scope of this study. And my reaction to that is Why? Why are those considerations beyond the scope of, of, of this particular study? And I, uh, I think especially with, with technology, especially think about the future of technology, uh, it's not just McKinsey, and I don't mean to single out McKinsey because I see it, I see it rather frequently. The argument is, well, there'll be, there'll be uh, uh, other sorts of effects that uh, we just won't know, and that's for others to sort of wrestle with and deal with. And I uh, make the argument: Why is that? Why why do we push those kinds of of, of cultural effects downstream for others to to deal with, as opposed to right now, when the technology is being developed? Why aren't these considerations be, uh, uh, being wrestled with today as part of the process? And I think that's a sort of a variation on 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 what you've just described, Brent. Um. So uh, one of the notes that I, I wrote down for myself here is that there, there seems to be a lack of fit between our preferred methods of inquiry 
um, and how we organize inquiry and public policy. Um, you know, there's hierarchy, bureaucracy, planning, and this um, and this contingent nature of reality um, that that we've been talking about, and it leads to kind of this endless frustration um, for policymakers and the public. And if I if I read your article correctly. Um, we could probably do better by focusing more of our analysis on kind of these big, uh, lack of a better word, let's call them primal forces that are driving um, uh, the, um, the developments within a particular society or around a particular issue. Um, so how would, if, if, A, do I have that right? And what would that look like from the standpoint of um, trying to reshape the policy process to get better results? So in the uh, in foresight practice, or at least among, uh, uh, among futurists, we will oftentimes talk about uh, identifying drivers. Uh, that's different from trends. A driver is a, uh, is a force, let's say, uh, social or cultural or economic force that is, uh, that, that, that's driving uh, the, um, the behavior of a particular system, let's say. So, uh, so a, a, a contemporary driver, let's say, would be, um, uh, let, let's say, uh, uh, income inequality. Uh, let's just call it that. We're not talking about a particular trend, not talking about a, a necessary direction it might be heading, not even a particular policy solution. Uh, but that would be one driver. Another driver might be uh, um, the uh, the relationship between um, the, the United States and China. Again, without get, going into the specifics of what that is, that there is a relationship between the United States and China is an important driver. For where uh, for where events are going, and then uh, so as futurists we tend to want to identify a number of those drivers, and then to explore the way in which these drivers interact with each other, and again it's through that interaction that we then explore what are the different sorts of possibilities that uh, that could emerge. Uh, one I'm particularly interested in right now is uh, America's uh, relative uh, uh, global position. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's strength in the world, however that might be defined, and we can define it across any number of directions. But I think that COVID-19, for instance, has, has drawn attention uh, to, uh, to where America's global leadership is heading. Um, so uh, I have one more question here, which is the role of kind of either philosophy or ideology um, in in this uh, matrix <laughs> of factors <laughs> that shape our thinking about the future. Um, you know, the, the the joke is, are you know, is uh, are we engaged in evidence based policy making or policy based evidence making? Um, <laughs> And how, how, do we, how do we tease out sort of the influence of preference um, within policymaking? You know, elected officials are elected based on, we hope, based on a set of beliefs and values 
uh, and they aren't, um, you know, the, it's the Jonathan Haidt, um, you know, elephant and writer thing here. Uh, our passions, who's, what's what's really going on here? Is it our passions, the elephant, or is it our rationality um, that's that's guiding our vision uh, or what we're trying to create in the future? So, how do you how do you think about that? So, uh, all futurists have bias uh, or have a particular orientation, uh, ideology, philosophy. Uh, I've, uh, I've been told by, uh, some of the groups that I work with, uh, we like working with you because you don't have any bias. And I sort of raise my eyebrows and I say, I don't, <laughs> uh, and maybe what that means is that, well, I don't, I don't hide them necessarily. Uh, I prefer to think of it as I'm more aware of, uh, my, my biases. And I think that's one of the things that defines a good futurist. Not that they don't have biases, that they understand and have a kind of self-awareness about this. Because it, uh, it, it's true, ideology or a particular sort of ideological uh, approach uh, assumes, one of my ways of defining ideology is knowing, uh, knowing the answer before the question's been asked. And there's nothing, I suppose, intrinsically wrong with, uh, with this sort of approach. But if you are looking for sort of sources of uh, I never saw this coming sort of behavior, I think it's oftentimes because ideology blinds us to maybe what we don't want to see or what we don't want to wrestle with or we never even thought about uh, considering in the first place. Uh, so I've uh, I've worked with clients, for instance, of, uh, of, of say, pr- a particular ideological or political orientation uh, who didn't uh, who didn't understand, for instance, um, or who didn't see the, uh, the, the, the rise of the $15 minimum wage movement, or indeed, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, and uh, I, I, I sort of worked gently with them to sort of say the, maybe the reason for that is that you weren't looking for it. Uh, and therefore, it wasn't within the realm of possibility to even be looking for such such possibilities. When I talk about like $15 minimum wage, what I said to this group is uh, because you're looking for the source of political change coming from Washington or indeed from, uh, from say, uh, uh, state houses, uh, where in fact the, the $15 minimum wage was born in cities, uh, Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles, not in Washington. And so if your orientation, if your lens is policymaking that's occurring in Washington or, you know, what, what, what are governors doing, uh, you could, in fact, be missing the source of where the important drivers are. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess my final thought on this is if I have if I have a real ideology at the moment, it is kind of an ideology of contingency of hmm. like, we just, it, we just can't know, you know, the knowledge problem is real. Uh, and, um, and that, that it seems to me is like leads to a bias for experimentation, mm-hmm. uh, in policy, uh, within a federal system that sort of contains the damage when stuff goes wrong. Um, because, or, or when these, um, you know, these contingencies and unintended consequences sort of, uh, come roaring at us, um, it's not a policy, you know, you're not trapped in a a system in which 
we've we've imposed this idea on the entire country, and now the entire country is reeling um, underneath the the failure or, or or problems that were embedded in that that we couldn't see. So anyway, it, it, it's just an interesting for me. It's been an interesting transition to like uh, humility, much more of a you know taking a much more humble approach um, toward the unknowns. Um, mm -hmm. And, and at least, you know, even if you, even if you don't have good scenarios, which we often, I think most of the time don't have, um, at least we have a system which, um, which can accommodate scenarios, um, on the unexpected scenarios that, that tend to build up. So uh, I sometimes uh, will say that uh, being a futurist and and practicing the kind of uh, humility that you've just uh, that you've just alluded to, being a futurist means uh, avoiding acting with certainty, but rather thinking about what we're doing as managing uncertainty. Huh. Well, David, uh, we're going a little bit over time, but I want I think we'd be remiss without. Um, making you scenario scenarioize for um for us uh i know brent's uh, been thinking a lot on his podcast um about the what covid will do to the future of work uh, he's mm -hmm. re recently talked to uh, clive thompson mm -hmm. a journalist who wrote in new york times magazine about what if working from home goes on forever mm -hmm. uh, and they talked about the end of cubicle culture i know you've been doing um some work on that uh, for various clients. So what are your thoughts about cubicle culture or anything else? What scenarios are you are you writing about the, um, the next five years? Uh, so the, the way I've been uh, describing, especially the world of work around COVID-19 is that uh, work is being bifurcated. Uh, and bifurcated in a way, since we were talking about historical analogies before, I think that there is an analogy that we can draw from. Uh, in times of plague and in, in, in times of uh, pandemics, uh, the wealthy tend to leave the cities. Uh, we we uh, certainly we saw it in the Roman Empire, right? Uh, when aristocrats would uh, would leave for their uh, for their villas and get out of the crowded, uh, festering cities. And I think that something similar has happened with COVID nineteen, uh, except rather than going off to our to our villas someplace that those of us that have the uh, the privilege of doing so uh, have cocooned ourselves at home. Uh, uh, I'm conducting this interview uh, in my home office and uh, indeed I've been I've been working from home uh, as a professor and as a as, as a as a uh, as a columnist uh, for about the past four months now. And yes, I agree. I think that those who are able, uh, are going to continue to work from home, uh, even as COVID-19, even uh, at that point that the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, dissipa uh, pandemic dissipates. And I think that one of the things that, we've, that, that some organizations have learned is that their, uh, their employees are just as, if not more productive working from home as they are at the office. And are finding that uh, you know, well, you know what? Rather than uh, rather than paying for the real estate uh, to have an office, we can uh, decentralize our operations. Does this mean that all of our work and that everything is going to happen uh, at home or at a distance? No, but I do think that more and more of at least some of our lives are going to be conducted um, uh, 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 in these distributed networks uh, over Zoom or other sorts of forums. 
um, this trend, I think, was uh, was happening, or this driver was occurring even before COVID nineteen. Uh, I call it the new mobility, uh, and what I mean by that is that, uh, especially with an Amazon delivery culture, we are uh, bringing more and more of the world to us at home. And that's uh, not just simply Amazon deliveries, that's DoorDash, uh, food deliveries, that's Uber Eats. Uh, that's also things like uh, bringing the gym at home. If I have a Peloton, for instance, or a mirror, I'm bringing uh, my gym into my home. And so I think uh, 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 all of these uh, 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 all of these trends have been sort of uh, exacerbated because of COVID-19. So uh, some people have had then uh, nightmare scenarios of what happens to, say, downtown Manhattan. I, I don't think downtown Manhattan probably is, is still going to be a very desirable place to be. Yeah, I know. But I'm thinking about Columbus and not just because you're there. Um, I like Columbus. Nice place. Mm -hmm. Biggest city in Ohio. People don't realize that. Um, it seems to me that if that scenario works out, downtown Columbus is still in good shape. Um, I'd like I'd much rather be in downtown Columbus than in an office park in Dublin uh, outside the uh, Columbus Ring Road. If yes, if we have to, uh, if we have to just, if we have to go to offices, the question is, where do we want those to be? Exactly. And and uh, and if offices are still uh, in in our future, and I think they probably are, they themselves are going to be uh, redesigned. Uh, we talk about the end of cube culture. I could imagine a scenario uh, where we'll have more cubes. Uh, so that we can, uh, uh, in in the same way that we're going to have like you know plastic shields uh, in front of our classes when we lecture, or the way we have them now at at uh, McDonald's, uh, we could see actually a revival of cube culture. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I could see challenges for Columbus being uh, so. Uh, a city like Columbus has been really pushing the uh, the the idea of the new urbanism of urban densification. I could just as easily see people say, boy, you know what? Density is the last thing you want uh, in a pandemic. And I think, you know what? Maybe I do want that home in the suburbs because at least we're a little bit more spaced out. And there's at least some evidence that, uh, that, 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 that home buyers are looking more at uh, suburbia uh, than they are, say, in the downtown core. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, again, that's not a, that's not a prophecy. That's not a prediction. Uh, but it is, I think a plausible inference that we could see maybe a return to suburbs. Hmm. So Brent, do you I, have any, uh, yeah, quotidian just, practical I, questions? Yeah. I wanted to just, uh, drill in on that point a little bit. I mean, I, if we take your, uh, your methodology and we ask ourselves the question, what are the drivers um, in the um, in a in a world that is passing through a pandemic of unknown duration, um, uh, it'll you know once a virus, always a virus. It's always going to be with us in one form or another. We're going to get better at handling it, better at treating it, um, and uh, it'll you know it, it will become like the flu over time when we you know when we have the therapeutics and vaccines. Um, when I look at this question, the, the density question, um, I see one of the main drivers as being economic um, for mm -hmm. businesses uh, at not having to pay for as much space. They're still going to need space, but uh, but they're not. All right, 
got to be careful about this, right? They're still going to need space, but they're not likely to need as much space um, as they mm-hmm. typically have. So that seems to be, because they can they can use their employees' space in their homes, you know, right. um, rather than uh, equipping them with an office that they use all the time. So that there's a potential economic incentive here um, for businesses to sort of say, yeah, this is really working for us. We're getting higher productivity, and uh, we can we can reduce overhead. Um, uh, but I, I'm just wondering, like, when we think about this, there there are there are a host of potential drivers. How do you choose which of the drivers you want to focus on um, when when building your scenario? Uh... What an excellent question. And I think that brings us back to uh, the historian as futurist, because I think as historians, we ask the same sort of question. Uh, how are we going to how are we going to frame this? How are we going to from what perspective uh, am I going to write about, you know, medieval Europe or whatever the case might be? And I think there's a similar sort of framing that that goes on when we're thinking about when we're thinking about the future. Uh, I, I forgot who said it, Al. You might remember, but uh, to know the history, you must know the historian first. I wish I knew. Yes, uh, I wish I could remember who said that. It was, uh, just, say, just say it was you. Uh, okay, that was me. <laughs> but uh, there's absolutely it, it's it's the same with the future as well. Uh, to uh, b- before you uh, before you read any futurists uh, statements, you have to know something about the futurist. I think their particular their particular orientation. It goes back to that sort of self awareness of bias uh, that I that I talked about. Well, I think that's a good place for us to uh, tie a, a bow on this conversation. Our our guest today has been David Staley. He's author of History in the Future. We'll have a link to that uh, on the uh, show notes. And I'm Al Zambone of Historically Thinking. And I'm Brent Orell from Hardly Working. Thanks for joining us. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.